Welcome, friends, to Charlie and Dropouts and the second episode of Field Studies, an ongoing series of guided audio commentary tracks designed to help shed light on the in-game lore, as well as the real-world inspirations for the flora, fauna, architecture, and designed elements of these beautiful digital spaces. Whether you're a player of Final Fantasy XIV or not, there's a ton to explore in this episode. Today, I'm going to take you on a journey that results from the coalescing of FF14's thematic dabbling in entropy, the mineral sciences, and we'll see the lingering effects of not only the bumpy transition from 1.0 to A Realm Reborn, but the influence that Final Fantasy XIII had on the design of XIV in ways you might not expect. I'm your guide for today, Victor Hunter, co-host of the Charlian Dropouts podcast. We are members of the Acts of the Blood God Network, and the only reason I can do these sorts of experimental episodes when no one is looking is because of audience support. So, if you enjoy the work we do over here, check out patreon.com slash bloodgodpod and chip in a couple bucks. A mere $1 a month gets you access to the Discord channel, where we have a thriving FF14 community with tons of weekly events and discussion. Charlie and Dropouts also has a new RSS feed separate from Acts of the Blood God with gorgeous new album art, so please subscribe, and if you can, some reviews would mean the world. Links to that are in the episode description. With that housekeeping out of the way, let's get started with today's Field Studies subject. You can either listen to these episodes as standalone podcasts or as a guided tour, where I'll be bringing up the landmarks and points of interest as we encounter them. In this way, I hope it becomes a fun reason to revisit old locations and a chance to recontextualize some of the places we visit as the Warrior of Light. It's a big game, and it's easy to forget some of the places we've visited until it comes up in duty roulette years later. For listeners following along in-game, my recommendation is opening up the Duty Finder menu, clicking on that little gear icon in the top left to open your Duty Finder settings, and selecting Unrestricted Party, then selecting the Twinning and pressing Join. This will let you enter the dungeon solo with your current level. Now, the Twinning is a level 80 dungeon, so for the most relaxed experience, level 90 with the highest eye level you can get your hands on is recommended. Um, I, I, I did it a few times. I have a, a Paladin and a Red Mage that are around eye level 620, and it went pretty well soloing. Um, Obviously, the higher you are, the better, and if you're finding it too stressful, then go ahead and set it to explorer mode. Uh, and if you're closer to level 80 and, and don't have the gear at all to solo the instance, then you're not missing out on too much by just going into the duty finder settings, selecting explorer mode. This lets you enter the dungeon with no monsters, it's a more chill experience, available to more players, just Keep in mind that if I start talking about certain enemies during the tour, you'll obviously be missing the visual aid to accompany the commentary. But overall, it should still work out just fine. It's your choice. I also recommend heading to the physical entrance of the instance from the map. You know, those little blue glowing auroras that show you where an instance starts from. It's not necessary... But again, I find it helps me understand the surrounding geography a bit more and, and contextualizes the space a bit. Like the difference between using Google Maps to get somewhere and really understanding a neighborhood. In this case, you'll want to teleport yourself to the Crystarium. First of all, before we even enter the dungeon, let's talk about the Crystal Tower for a second. The tower is so intrinsically tied to the story of not only Shadowbringers, but 
the history of Eorzea, the fall of Dalamud, the Allegan Empire, etc., etc., that it's hard to believe it didn't even exist before 2.0. As we all know, 1.0 was a flop, and now Kiyoshida was brought on as producer and director to salvage the project, and with it, the reputation of the Final Fantasy name. Obviously, the success of A Realm Reborn and every subsequent expansion is evidence that he did a very good job of that. But before 2.0, before the in-game fall of Dalamud, he was already in charge of putting out as many fires as possible with the post-launch patches of 1.0. The goal was basically to retain as many players as they could while making sure they had enough game to play right up until the servers were shut down in preparation of ARR. Yoshipi's love of Final Fantasy III is well documented. He said on several occasions that it's his favorite in the series, though if he's anything like me, the very concept of a favorite Final Fantasy, an FFF, is entirely mercurial and can be dependent on little more than what I had for breakfast that day. Before Yoshida's involvement, there was a landmark in Mordona, surrounded by high-level monsters. It was a crystalline cave with stones arranged around the center. Virtually nothing was known about it until Yoshi P appeared on the scene with some lore drops through an unlikely source, familiar to anyone listening who happens to play Monk. Our NPC pal Eric tells us that this is the tomb of Zandes. Yes, with an S. And it's said to be where the Allegan Emperor is buried. Believing that the restorative powers of the crystals will someday resurrect him. Now, fans of FF3 would have recognized the name Zande as one of the major antagonists of the game. But why the S on the end? Why Zandes? Either way, this thread never got resolved and was more or less replaced by the Crystal Tower raid series and its storyline. In the lore of ARR, the tower had fallen beneath the Earth's surface in the calamity of Earth that dealt the Allegan Empire one last decisive blow thousands of years ago. And it wasn't until Bahamut emerged from Dalamud and raised the land that the tower resurfaced. It's during the Crystal Tower questline, during ARR, that we discover Emperor Zande. No S this time. Zande had been cloned by the mad scientist and inexplicably key figure of Endwalker, Amon, so that Zande, or at least clones of him, could rule the Allegan Empire in perpetuity. Truly the principal Scudworth to Zande's JFK. Um, I'm, I'm writing this script right now, and Zande and Zande's clone, multiple Zande's, was it, was it called the tomb of Zande's, not because the name was wrong, but because there is more than one Zande entombed, it's plural Zande's, hmm. That would be a very on-brand FF14 additive retcon. Hmm. As a side note for anyone in the middle of the Myths of the Realm raid series, Wrathfrost in Mordona is not always where the stone with Thaliac's symbol in it resided. In fact, at some point during 1.0, Louis Swa himself carved Thaliac's sigil into the center of the tomb of Zandes. Now, with the Twelve telling us that their stones are eternal and have been in Eorzea since they first arrived, it'll be interesting to see what Olympic-level lore gymnastics get implemented to make this make sense. Also, why does Menfina's symbol have two moons on it, if Dalamud wasn't even made yet? Whatever. The point I was trying to make is that the crystal tower, the crystal tower of the source, the twin of this crystal tower that we are now standing in front of on the first, was not only never meant to be this important to the story, 
But it was never meant to be part of the game Final Fantasy XIV, until Yoshida needed to draw on his history with the franchise to further populate the world. And as we get further into the depths of this twinned crystal tower, we'll see just how much recycling he was prepared to do to ensure that his team shipped A Realm Reborn with as much for players to do as possible. But while we're out here, let's talk crystals! From this area of the Crystarium, we see the crystal tower more close up than we are ever permitted during ARR's raid series. Like I mentioned in the Lost City of Amdapur field studies episode, FF14 is full of loading zones with stories to tell. We as players have to assume that our Warrior of Light is not surprised by what this entryway into the tower looks like. Is this verbatim what lies at the base of the Sources Tower once we've emerged from the Labyrinth of the Ancients? We as players haven't actually seen this, but our Warrior of Light has seen every bit of connective tissue between these environments that budgetary restrictions once kept the developers from creating. Because we never see the tower from this close, we've also never seen the crystal formations this close to the base. Usually see the crystal tower. It appears to have a lot of smooth, rounded curves that generally fly in the face of how crystals organically form. For example, think back to the crystals of light that the Warrior of Light is gifted during the events of ARR. Those puppies, which you are hopefully picturing in your mind's eye, belong to the hexagonal crystal family for their six points of rotational symmetry. If you were to view these crystals as a cross-section from one end, you would see that from the center they have six faces, six vertices, etc. Just generally, these guys are hexagonal. Easy geometry. Now, to be fair, if you walk into any crystal store, you can find basically any rock that has been carved into that shape. And believe me, in research for this episode, I've had more than my fill of search results trying to peddle me healing crystals that would look perfectly at home in a Warrior of Light's inventory. But this kind of symmetry is so iconic because it is a completely organic occurrence. And the complexity with which crystals can compound on themselves geometrically gives way to structures that, to anyone without a very specialized understanding of atomic structures, would look sculpted by human hands. If you look at the part of the crystal tower closer to the base, we see much more angular crystal structures. And this part of the tower is the most visually similar to the tower from Final Fantasy III, specifically the Famicom version. These tall, straight spires, yalms wide and dozens taller. I like to think these could have been the organically formed crystals that provided the suitable foundation for the tower that Emperor Zande would build during his reign. Proximity to the mysterious font of ether that is Silver Tear Lake, it's not hard to imagine these impressive columns forming over the millennia. In fact, similarly massive crystals can be found on Earth. Discovered in 2000, Cueva de los Cristales in Nica, Mexico, is home to selenite crystals nearly 38 feet tall. It's theorized that these took roughly a million years to form, a timescale that doesn't exactly mesh with our understanding of the relatively young planet of Aetheris. But then again, we're also dealing with building blocks with very different properties. Let me say that I am no crystallographer. That is, someone who studies the science of crystals on molecular and atomic levels, a field of study that I have a profound admiration for, but I hope I can provide a peek into that world to help give context for the themes that form the foundation of this dungeon. Even a basic grasp of crystallography ends up revealing the powerful metaphors and themes underpinning this dungeon, especially when you consider the crystallographic phenomenon known as twinning, and exactly what it takes for crystals to undergo this transformation. So with that little tease, let's dive into the dungeon itself. Get your duty finder settings ready, make yourself a sandwich, I'll meet you inside the crystal tower after the break. Oh, and it was a 
Uh, it was a poached egg and sourdough. I had a poached egg and sourdough for breakfast with, uh, with some fresh feta that's just been burning a, a gosh darn hole in my fridge's pocket, let me tell you. It doesn't take much to convince me to toss some feta on a delicious egg breakfast. And a poached egg and toast. Which means that my favorite Final Fantasy today is... Looks at shelf. Lightning Returns. It's a really good game. There's some, there's some top-notch Naoshi Mizuta tunes. Guy knows how to write a violin solo. I, I truly, I, I picked that game at random, but I'm realizing there's a ton of FF13 stuff coming up in this episode. So I have an excuse to drop some real hot lava OST tracks. Okay, make your sandwich. See you in a bit. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to the Crystal Tower. First, I'd like to get the obvious out of the way. It's a great song. The beauty of having an all-timer like A Long Fall in an optional dungeon is not lost on me. The monstrous virality this song attained while simultaneously being an anthemic medley of themes from off-the-beaten-path raids that a non-insignificant number of players don't even bother with is very funny. That this dungeon synthesizes these disparate narrative corners of FF14's optional content into a cohesive origin story integral to the understanding of the critically acclaimed Shadowbringers' metaphysics just as seamlessly as the music does is hilarious that one of those leitmotifs is from the part of Final Fantasy III, a game no one in the Western world used to like except me and my sickos, that people often cite as one of the cruelest and most grueling endgame jokes of a dungeon slog is downright jokerfying. In the PAX East 2023 Final Fantasy XIV Q&A, Yoshida answered one of my questions, which was, and I'm paraphrasing here, what Final Fantasies have you not pulled from that you would like to represent more in the future of FF14? His answer included Final Fantasy II, which received a diplomatic but tepid response from the crowd. Because every Final Fantasy ranking list in the world has convinced all the sheep-like people out there, that Final Fantasy II is the bad one. Well, friend, this is me calling my shot right now on May 10th, 10.03 a.m., 2023, that in the exact same way that Yoshida has unlocked in the collective unconscious an appreciation for FF3 through 
illusion. Final Fantasy II will, in the coming years, be reassessed and rehabilitated after FF14 steeps us in its references and musk. My point is, and the hill that I'm happy to die on, is that there is no bad Final Fantasy game. And it's through force-feeding us the catchiest melodies and greatest hits highlights of each entry Final Fantasy XIV is slowly doing this evangelizing for me. Shifting gears, I really appreciate places like the Twinning and Eureka Orthos combining the different styles of elegant architecture we see regularly. Obviously, the Azislav Dalamud clean metal lines with neon piping that we see contrasts heavily with the masonry, gilding, and hieroglyphics of Zande's crystal tower. We'll see more of this as we venture into the tower. For now, let's confront our first batch of enemies. The search drone, enforcement droid 209, and the figure I find the most compelling, the Zagnol. Now the name Zagnol may be familiar to the reapers out there. Zagnol means crow's beak, and despite it being a kind of battle axe from India, its beak-like shape makes it suit the reaper aesthetic far more than the warrior. The first major appearance of the Zagnol enemy in Final Fantasy is the tusked monster fought during the Festival of the Hunt in FF9. The look at sports in the twinning, however, is ripped straight from the Final Fantasy XIII series. The basis of this model is used for behemoth-type enemies in FF13. More on that soon. Once you're done with these first mobs, feel free to head into the next area, dubbed the Dark Invitation. Now, the names of the areas in this dungeon threw me for a loop a little bit. Um, our previous location, where we start, the Hall of Ascension in English, is something more like the Hall of Heaven in Japanese. Uh, the Dark Invitation, then, is more along the lines of the Gate to Purgatory in Japanese, which makes more sense as we exit this hall into the main facility underneath the tower, called simply the Underworld. Now, for veterans of the Binding Coil, there's a nostalgia to entering a vast, enclosed vertical space with jump platforms as your main mode of transportation. Feel free to pull this next batch of mobs with the servo-mechanical minotaur. I'm pretty sure I don't need to go into what a minotaur is, yeah? Minotaurs are a kind of chimera created by the Allegans. Of the most notable scientists of Alleg, concerned with the unholy creation of chimeras, was none other than Amon. Minotaurs, due to their bulky frames and strength, were often used as security forces in research facilities just like this one. It's safe to assume they were once stored in the broken pods we see scattered around the area, just like the many creatures stored in other Alligan facilities like Dalamud or Azizla. Now, this minotaur and his little buddies are not what interests me here. I'm just killing time while you get to the good stuff. When you're ready, head over to the jump pad and engage our next group of enemies. There's some Zagnols here, too. I think there's two Zagnols. Anyway, get rid of them, then move on to Surplus Kalia and the Clockwork Arknights. Surplus Kalia and the Clockwork Arknights. It's a good band name. Kalia was the boss fight from turn two of the final coil of Bahamut. Now, taxonomically, Kalia is considered a forge kin. Anything um, constructed. It's robots. Um, you know, stuff like that. But it's unclear how much of its body is simply modeled after a Hydra Chimera and how much of it is actual stitched together dragon parts. Either way, doesn't matter, because the best guys are coming up next. The Clockwork Arc Knights. If you can, do yourself a favor and knock out everyone in this pull except for one Arc Knight, and it'll make this a little bit more fun. Uh, 
If you can, swing that camera up nice and close to the model. Its movements are a bit erratic, but you may notice that there's a little bit of writing along the sides of its head, as well as on the forearm on the beclawed side. Imagine my surprise when I learned that the Clockwork Knights did not, in fact, get matching tattoos to commemorate their time in the shoegaze sensation Surplus Kalia and the Clockwork Arc Knights, nor did they go through the same phase Mario went through in 2004 when he personally designed the GBA SP Tribal Edition. Editor's note, if you want to move on ahead, I promise I'll get around to what the writing says. It's just that this next chunk is going to take a bit. Uh, if, if you end up out of sync with the track, don't worry. We'll reconvene right after the boss fight with the Alpha Zagnol. If we want to translate exactly what is written on these guys, we need to go to the source. No, not our, the source. Though, hmm, they are there too. The source of this enemy model. I, personally, deeply resent anyone who makes a big deal out of games reusing assets. Not only are you showing you have no idea what goes into making a video game, but it's also just very silly. Majora's Mask is objectively the best Zelda. I just replayed a bunch of Mega Man Battle Network games, and the first three games use the exact same hometown map. Except they aren't exactly the same. The main character's home changes a little each time with new furniture or, or different posters on his wall. Same with his best friend's rooms. Flowers around town are a little different each time as time passes. Every little difference stands out that much more against a familiar backdrop. It's like going to see two movies and being upset that they didn't rebuild the theater each time. My point is that recontextualizing an existing thing can be just as impactful as creating a whole new work. And it's usually a great deal less taxing on resources. Whether it's Andy Warhol, Run DMC, or Nintendo's own philosophy to design hardware around inexpensive existing materials instead of pouring resources into high-end tech, recycling, repurposing, and remixing is often a more sustainable way to create. And so, Naoki Yoshida saw his light at the end of the tunnel. Square's journey into the HD era was not a smooth one. Delays around FF12 cascaded into delays for FF13, pushing it from the PS2 onto the PS3. It's no secret that Japanese studios were not prepared for the massive leap in fidelity that the new console generation forced the industry to adapt to. Management styles needed to be restructured, workflow changed, roles shifted, workloads increased, and through it all, Final Fantasy XIII finally released in 2009 in Japan, 2010 in the Western world, to massive sales, but critical disappointment. The second blow of this 1-2 combo on Final Fantasy's brand would hit later in 2010 with the launch of Final Fantasy XIV 1.0. Again, a critical nightmare. With Yoshida taking the reins, he knew what he had to do. But it wasn't just overhauling MMO systems that had fallen out of favor or were thought of as dated. It also meant having enough content to keep players engaged. He also knew that his art team would not have the bandwidth to generate everything they would need to keep things fresh for players. So, in a tradition that goes back to Final Fantasy I's first palette swap of a goblin into the more fearsome and very purple Goblin Guard, Yoshida's team plucked as many assets as they could from what was, at the time, the only other Final Fantasy of the HD generation, and as such, the only Final Fantasy whose assets wouldn't look out of place in Eorzea. Final Fantasy XIII. And so, we see things like the Zagnol, the Alpha Zagnol, which you may very well be fighting right now, and of course, the Clockwork Knight. In the world of Final Fantasy XIII, there are two worlds, Cocoon and Pulse. 
Enemies like the Clockwork Knight are first discovered in an area on Cocoon where scrap machines from Pulse have been dumped like a landfill. Both Cocoon and Pulse have different written alphabets. But if we take a look at the writing on the Clockwork Knights with Pulsian script loaded into our Little Orphan Annie decoder ring, we can see that the side of its head says Pulse Machine and on the arm, Grand Pulse. Let me tell you, friend, you haven't seen so many people jump on a shared world fan theory like this since Shinra in FF10. It didn't help matters when the nature of the source and the shards was revealed. The presence of the Clockwork Knights only served as undeniable proof to some people that every shard in FF14 was a world from a previous Final Fantasy game. There's still a bit of that floating around with the Void's many FF4 allusions. And I don't blame people for picking up on something this granular and taking it to what seems like a logical conclusion. It, it, it feels like it's an Easter egg or, or a secret or you've, you've put together the ARG that the developers intended. The truth is much simpler in that the writing is just a vestige of a time when the ARR team desperately needed assets to fill Yoshida's ambitious Final Fantasy theme park. And the use of a language that shouldn't exist, referring to a world that felt like it could be next door, was simply an oversight in the mad scramble to populate that theme park. While there haven't been any overt textual connections between Alec and Final Fantasy XIII, the motif has continued, despite the absence of 2.0's impending launch. In fact, it continues just up ahead. Now, if you're done with the Alpha Zagnol, now is the time to move on to the next area. But I want to note that I believe the Alpha Zagnol is the first time a 13 style behemoth uses the signature 13-style behemoth technique of ripping a giant sword out of its own back and standing on its hind legs. Thirteen players know to fear that transition. Just be glad the Alpha Zagnol doesn't completely heal itself to full HP. As we press on, I also want to acknowledge that the name of this area is simply Repurposement. As much a geographical name as it is a theme and mission statement for this dungeon. Also, take this time, if you haven't already, to read the lovely Data Log 2.5 left behind by our friend Biggs III. Do you know Hayao Miyazaki got his start working on Biggs III? Bad joke. Go ahead and pull whatever you can on this next batch of mobs to see more Final Fantasy 13. You see, this is my favorite kind of fan service. We are long past the time when the art team needs to reuse enemies from FF13, but because of a necessity over a decade ago, Alec has become inexorably linked to the aesthetic of FF13. Or at least the developers have decided it is. Maybe one person just thinks it's really funny, so they keep it up. And I agree with them. The Flanborgs were around in some form or another in every entry in the 13 trilogy, while the Shabtis, which I believe first show up in Azisla, are recycled from Lightning Returns. A Shabti, or Ushabti, was an ancient Egyptian carved figure placed around the tomb of the deceased. They were meant to be servants that would aid the dead in the afterlife. Sometimes the entire floor would be filled with Shabti, depending on the status of the tomb's resident. The Shabti of FF14 are chimeras created by Alec, and were the first of their kind to be successfully mass-produced for the war against Mericidia. Interestingly enough, real-world Shabtis were created in such massive quantities and with such similar features that it's believed that most Shabtis were batch-processed with molds to increase production. That's, uh, I don't know, 
That's just a fun little unexpected parallelism there. I don't even know if that's on purpose, but that's great. We don't have confirmation what the followers of Zervon look like, but it's entirely possible that the reptoids we are confronting here may be similar in appearance. This model shows up in the ad phase of the fight with Zervon, and the Allegans have shown that they aren't above creating abominations similar in appearance to the foes they intend to unleash them upon to maximize psychic damage. There, unfortunately, hasn't been a ton for me to say about our surroundings, but in case it wasn't obvious, we are now firmly in the part of the Crystal Tower that the Ironworks set up shop in. I love the makeshift platforms and walkways built on top of the many pipes and cables and, and cooling systems and energy transference units and storage crates they've had to haphazardly place around the ethereal core of the tower. Despite this being their final hope, they still found the time to make sure everything was painted the signature ironworks white and blue. Biggs Third understands branding. Now here, we arrive at Ethereal Observation and the encounter with Mithridates. Now, where do I even start with you, Mithridates? First of all, once again, we're looking at a recycled FF-13 enemy type. The Mithridates of FF-13 is an optional hunt mark and a Seath. Seath are the shambling, monstrous remains of those chosen by the gods to fulfill a duty that failed in that duty. And so the Seath wander the realm of Pulse, waiting to be slain by those who can complete the tasks they could not. So what is he doing here? I have absolutely no idea. Is, uh, is he a void scent that slipped through? I Truly not a clue. Unless I'm mistaken, this is the first time a Seath model has been used. The gods don't work like that in the world of 14, either. What happened to you, Mithridates? Who are you? Like I say, someone just loves dipping back into that FF13 asset well. It just so happens that this pick has wild lore implications that we don't even know enough about to unpack. But it turns out there are layers to Mithridates, layers that might reveal some method behind this madness. Mithridates was a common name, but there are at least two historical Mithridateses that could have informed his place here in the twinning specifically. One Mithridates was a Persian noble who was killed in the year 334 BC by a famous Greek military commander after taking a spear to the face. 200 years later, a Mithridates VI was born under the light of a passing comet that many believe to be prophetic of the coming of a great ruler. He would be crowned many years later as the same comet returned to the night sky and would rule the kingdom of Pontus, located in modern-day Turkey, until it was conquered by the Roman Empire in 63 BC. Mithridates VI claimed to be the descendant of a famous Greek military commander, the same famous Greek military commander that speared the face of another notable Mithridates, and that commander's name, uh, some of you, somebody out there might know where I'm going with this, was Alexander the Great. Now, it's also rumored that Mithridates VI was struck by lightning as a child and survived with nothing but a crown-shaped scar. That's a little goofy for my books but might explain the lightning-aspected abilities that the Mithridates of the Twinning employs in combat. Now, once Mithridates is put to rest, it's time to descend into what appears to be the sum of the Crystal Tower's ether, and into the Collapsed Passage. The 
gras, as described in the Encyclopedia Eorzea, are similar in makeup to elemental sprites, but their thirst for ether is far greater, and they seek to multiply. Originally appearing in Final Fantasy XI, gras seem to be made out of hexagonal discs and are known to take on the shape of whatever creature they supped upon. The name gras appears to originate from FF11's Zilartian language and is usually accompanied by a prefix like ao, ah, or me. In fact, one of the few other instances of the gras in 14 is the ao gras, found in Eureka Hydatos, where you can also find the orchestrian role for FF11's Garden of Rumet, the stomping ground for many of Eleven's gras. If the gras are in fact here on purpose, and didn't wander in sometime after the transport of the Crystal Tower, I like to imagine something about the Gras' natural ability to, to focus ether into a concentrated form somehow informed the ironworks effort. Anything to keep energy from being siphoned off into the interdimensional rift. Time travel and entropy are classically at odds with each other, after all. On the subject of our surroundings, it's tough to say whether the um, FF7 of it all is intentional or not, but this certainly brings to mind both the life stream and the Mako reactors. It's also not the first time we've delved into ostensibly an inverted tower through an observational deck and into an ethereal realm where space and time's grip on reality has loosened. And it won't be the last! This view really drives home the desperation of the ironworks engineers. Of course there's scrap metal everywhere. Of course this thing was torn apart by traveling the rift. It only had to work once. It's like finding a rocket lying on the seafloor. But Biggs III still made sure it had the ironworks logo on it. I love that. Moving on to the next poll, you may remember from the Omega Raid questline, Wedge's invention, the Mark 14 Thermocoil Boilmaster. The presence, then, of the Mark 144 Thermocoil Boilbuster is bittersweet. We know that in the future this crystal tower comes from, Wedge, like many others, met his end not long after Black Rose choked the land. It seems at the very least that Biggs I, who was at his side until the end, made sure that his best friend's favorite invention saw iteration after iteration, even passing the design documents down to his children until it reached Biggs III, head of the ironworks of the future we will never see. Boss time! Now, don't worry if you're not exactly at the final boss yet. I have lots to say. The first of these things being, this is incredibly my shit. Again, the theme of this dungeon has been the three R's. Recycle, repurpose, remix. And it all culminates here, for the engineers of the ironworks, in the same way it does for the dev team salvaged parts built on a nebulous scaffolding that they just pray holds together long enough to stick the landing. The Crystal Tower, Alexander, and Omega were never meant to lead to this, but the tools were all there. The name Alexander means Defender of Man, and the Final Fantasy Summon Alexander is no doubt named for Alexander the Great, famous for stabbing a guy named Mithridates in the face to death, among other things. Despite only living to 32, Alexander the Great's military might built an empire during the 4th century BC. Tycoon, spelt T-Y-C-O-O-N, is the English version of the Japanese term tycoon. T-A-I-K-U-N. While in English, it has come to mean a powerful or influential person, especially when it comes to business or roller coasters, tycoon 
was a title used by the shogun of feudal Japan during foreign relations and was adopted by Americans, specifically then-future President Abraham Lincoln, when Japanese delegates visited in 1860. The Japanese tycoon means great lord or supreme commander, a worthy successor to defender of man. But it's worth noting that the spelling of the name of this boss, tycoon, is the English version. Even in Japanese, it uses the katakana reserved for foreign words instead of using the kanji for tai and kun. The nature of the word tycoon is built off of passing on knowledge. Maybe the recipients of that knowledge don't exactly know what to do with it at the time. Tycoon the word and the tycoon are both synthetic in every sense of the word. This entire dungeon is predicated on synthesis. Musically, visually, architecturally, thematically, everything here is borrowed. Our scrap metal Alexander, our synthetic protector of man, a recursive giant standing on its own shoulders. This boss is fought in, and this tour concludes in, an area known as the cornice in English. But something like the dimensional travel device center in Japanese. Certainly, the Japanese name gives us a pretty solid idea of what's going on here. But I think I appreciate the poetry of the English version quite a bit. A cornice can refer to the overhanging molding on a roof or ceiling, like the, the lip that hangs over the edge. Similarly, it's part of a snowdrift that extends out beyond the base. Think of a, a, a frozen wave with the curl extending out over top of itself. That curl at the top is, is the cornice. They are structurally unstable and incredibly dangerous for unsuspecting hikers or snowboarders. But they can also harden and compound upon themselves as the season goes on until they form beautiful crystalline waves on the precipice of collapse. Crystals, too, form quietly, slowly, over eons, building blocks on building blocks, until they form something truly awe-inspiring. There's a phenomenon in crystallography where one crystal will form another identical crystal, growing either out of its side, sometimes they bisect each other, but they are the exact same on the molecular level and will grow in tandem with one another even as they extend off further and further away from their point of contact. One way this mirroring can occur is when the crystal formation experiences a great deal of physical trauma. This could be a, a shift in temperature, it could be a dramatic change in pressure. Either way, the stress of this event forever alters the course of this crystal's growth, often resulting in a second, identical crystal, calcifying layer by layer, shaped by hardship, hardened by time and the elements, generation after generation, the inhabitants of the source saw their one chance. The single cornice they had built from repurposed information over and over and over again, from which they could launch their final hope. The name crystallographers have given this phenomenon of crystals forming their own identical siblings should, at this point, come as no surprise. Twinning Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Field Studies series. These are a lot of fun to research and record, but they're a lot of work as well. So if you'd like to support more episodes like this one or other weird experimental Final Fantasy XIV adjacent episodes, please 
head on over to patreon.com slash bloodgodpod to chip in a little. You'll also get access to the monthly Charlene Dropouts roundtable episodes with my fellow hosts, Nadia Oxford and Mike Williams, as well as access to tons of Acts of the Blood God episodes to serve all of your RPG needs. Be sure to follow us over on Twitter at bloodgodpod and at charlianpod, as well as myself at victorhunter. If you enjoy this episode format and want to see coverage of a specific topic, please let us know on one of those channels, or even better, head to our Acts of the Blood God Discord channel, which you can get access to through our Patreon, and tell me there. We have a great FF14 community over there, and we'd love to have you join us for one of our many in-game community events. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time. A radiance that brings endless night. Now a secret beckons, let it show us the way. Together we will find the break of day. Did I sound too sleepy? (laughs) Is it okay if I sound sleepy? Maybe people fall asleep to this. I think that's lovely. I would like that. I just hope I didn't sound too sleepy for the people who aren't falling asleep to this. Oh well!